Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monster Hour. I am Quinn, your keeper of monster and mysteries. With me today are Kyle. Hi, I'm Kyle, and I play Alvin Hughes, the monstrous. Tio. Well, hello there. My name is Tio, and I play Constance, the expert. And Hannah. Hello, I'm Hannah, and I play Jer the Crooked. June. You find yourself, again, at a mall. I think for a moment you have to contemplate whether it's the same, whether or not you're repeating this memory, but you realize there are differences. There are small, subtle differences that indicate you're in a different spot. Where are you? I am in a very nice mall, a nicer mall than the one where I got lost. It's a mall that's in like a tall building. It's got like five or six stories with all of these like curving, winding escalators. So I'd say if we want to be nondescript, large city on the West Coast at a very fancy mall, which is not a state that I grew up in or the state that I was born. But if you're asking what state I am, I'm in the thieving state of mind. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. And uh, you can also hear the Nordstrom's has a piano and there's somebody at the piano playing. So you can kind of hear the music coming from Nordstrom's. I mean, all of the stores have their own music, but like only Nordstrom's has a real live piano. So you can kind of hear that above the hustle and bustle of the crowd of people. And it's a weekend, so it's pretty busy. Up ahead of you, as you are moving through this knot of people, there is a small commotion. There's an older woman, probably in her 60s, maybe her 70s. She's dressed in very nice, very expensive, tasteful clothing, and she is screaming. She is screaming at the top of her lungs, not in distress, but in anger and frustration. And you can see that she is just unloading on a young woman. The older woman is holding up like two garments and she's saying, you call this an evening gown? I wouldn't put this on my dog. What are you thinking, young woman? I don't pay you to buy me this trash, this garbage. I might as well go to the outlet mall and take trash bags out of the containers and wrap my body in them. Do you want me to be embarrassed? Are you trying to make a fool of me? Is that what you're trying to do? Uh, And just, just savaging this young woman. What do you do? I spy a mark. So, um, June, same name at this point, has been practicing some pickpocketing skills. I mean, lots of busy places in a big city to practice that, especially like with a lot of tourists. And so I've been getting good at this. So I see her, I zero in, and I start walking towards her. And as I get really close to her, I run smack into her. And because she's so startled, it gives me the opportunity as I'm kind of pushing myself off of her and also just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, are you okay? One hand goes into the person gets the wallet. Why don't you give me a roll to act under pressure? Nine. On a seven to nine, there's a worse outcome, a hard choice, or a price to pay. I think what happens is you you start approaching this older woman, and you fall into her, but you seem to fall a bit harder than you expected, and the two of you go crashing to the ground. And you look at her, and something doesn't seem quite right. 
as she hits the ground, everything sort of wobbles, almost like jelly. And you can see in these small fissures in her skin, inky darkness beneath. But very quickly, this old woman gathers herself and she looks at you and says, are you not paying any attention to where you're going? What's wrong with you? Oh my God. I'm so, I'm so sorry. These new sneakers, you know, I just got them and they're just, they're real slick on them. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? I just, I, I'm so sorry. She turns to this other young woman and says, don't think I'm done with you. But then turns back to you, June, and just starts like laying into you. Not profanity laden, but just like the upbraiding that only an older woman who has seen some shit can like just lay into you. Again, I am so, so sorry. I, I need to go get a present for my mother. And I'm, I'm so very sorry, ma'am. What happens next, June? Well, I think she finally gives up. My guess is that there's some kind of huffy retort about young people not showing proper respect. And she turns back to this poor salesperson. And I quickly walk out of there. The Nordstrom's is on the next floor up. So I go up there and I start looking at the scarves. They have very nice scarves. There's a little Hermes section there. And uh, I pick out one. It's got this really nice equestrian design on it. This thing costs easily 500 bucks. And I go up to the counter with the scarf. And I pull out the wallet, set the scarf there, and I hand over the credit card. This cashier, who's a young man in his mid-twenties, scruffy looking, looks at you and holds up the credit card and says, <laughs> Mabus, can I see some ID? Oh, yes, of course. I'm Ms. What? What's the woman's last name? Quinn, what's the... Uh, and if you say Mabus Beacon, no, it's not uh, Beacon. <laughs> Mabus Maplethorpe. Mavis Maplethorpe. Okay, I see. Oh, of course. I'm Ms. Maplethorpe's personal shopping assistant. Here's her identification, and I pull out the ID, and I set it there. She specifically asked, sir, for the Hermes scarf. I know they've got this one with the nautical design. It's a takeoff on the, the Chanel design with all the jewels on it, but I didn't see that you had one there. So the equestrian design is going to have to do. Give me a roll to manipulate someone. You got it. Well, it's another nine. On a seven to nine, they'll do it, but only if you do something for them right now to show them that you mean it. June, what do you do to show them that you mean it? How did you convince this person? I mean, I did already explain my knowledge of the Hermes scarves. Act like her. Oh, and I'm frankly, it's rather upsetting that you don't have that design of the Hermes scarves because I know it just came out about a month ago and you just have the equestrian. I hope it's because you're sold out. Do you have one in back? Could you check and see if they have that, the nautical design and not just the equestrian? Because again, that just came out. It should be on the shelves. Uh, I can go check. Yeah, please do. Thank you. And this young man goes back and, and looks and after, you know, five or ten minutes, I think he comes back empty-handed and says, I'm I'm sorry, ma'am. Uh we don't we don't have that in stock. I'm I'm very sorry. It's fine. I go over and I pick out another Hermes scarf as well. Um <laughs> that one'll do. Yes, we'll take we'll take both of those. Thank you. And the cashier rings you up. June, this was your first real grift. What happened next? 
this being the first real grip, there was a real rush. First of all, I lifted this woman's wallet. Second of all, she deserved it. Third of all, I walked out of that store with about $1,000 worth of scarves. And it felt real good. It felt good in a way that a lot of things in my life had not felt particularly good. It felt good to kind of stick it to somebody who deserved it. It felt good to steal something that has no fucking inherent value beyond the label on it. And yet, that label matters so much. (laughs) And also explains, like, why JR loves her suit so much. Mm -hmm. Um, But that kind of started me on a, okay, this is a dangerous way to make a living, but it's also kind of fun. And the danger makes it fun. And I'm good at it. So you step out of the Nordstrom's feeling a rush, a high, like you haven't ever felt before. Mm -hmm. And this mall just opens up in front of you storefront after storefront of opportunity and that card in your hand is is power give me a roll to read a bad situation oh boy nine (laughs) on a seven to nine hold one this mall everything in this mall at your fingertips what's my best way out the options i think for the first time in your life at least in this moment are limitless. This woman's credit card, a passport to not places, but things, anything you want. JR, this mall is an enticement. It is an enticement to stay. It is an enticement to indulge. You need to leave. You got to get out of here. And as you have this realization, you see an emergency exit. And tied to it is a single, long, silver strand. I take a look at the mall. I just kind of look it over. Because, man, it's just, it is an experience. It is beautiful. All of these glass windows full of expensive shit that I could buy. And I would look so good in it. Oh, my God. A fucking trench coat. I would look so dope in a trench coat. Oh, man. Okay. And tear my eyes away from the London Fog trench coat. And I walk over to the emergency exit, and I leave. And everything fades away. Guardian. You find yourself standing in a crowd of people. A mob, really. It is dark out. The village around you is illuminated mostly by torchlight. You're surrounded by a series of small single-story structures. And up ahead of you is a wooden stage. Simple, not too tall. And standing atop of it are a handful of figures. Most of them clad in simple armor. They appear to be militia of some variety. But one figure catches your eye. They are in a stockade, just their hands and their head showing outward. Their skin is extremely pale. They have a gaunt, hollow look to them. Their eyes are sunken and orange, and their teeth are long and sharp. 
The crowd around you is screaming and shouting, jeering and cheering as one of these guards steps up to address them. Citizens, I come bearing good tidings. The foul beast that has plagued this land, that has taken too many of your children, too many of your wives, too many of your husbands, your livestock, and your livelihood, we have captured it. The beast before you, a vampire. A vampire. A vampire. A vampire. And it is time to bring this foul vampire to justice, to send it to the death that it deserved so long ago, to make it pay for the damage it has caused. Is it actually, though? Guardian, I think you recognize this creature as well. Mm-hmm. Hungry, confused, and desperate. A creature your forebearers at some point might have called kith, or perhaps mm-hmm. kin. Poor thing is on the wrong side. What are you doing amidst this crowd, Guardian? I think I look down at my hands. What do they look what do they look like? At first they look just like normal human hands. But then slowly you see claws start to protrude. These rough, razor-sharp, rugged black fingernails sticking outward and hair sprouting from your knuckles and your joints. And you can see you're beginning to change in the midst of this crowd. They're preparing to see this vampire, which it'd be nice to get this thing just home and out of here because, yeah, it's causing problems for these people and these people are scared. But also, they're going to get me if I stick around. Um, Why don't you give me a roll to read a bad situation? Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, no. <laughs> My memories are so... They're great. <laughs> they're so good for me. That That's a three. Oh, boy. Guardian, you're trying to get this under control because this is not something... Since you were a whelp, you have not had this kind of problem. But it is real now. And as you look around, you see people starting to turn. And one person points and says, Oh, close. Uh, no, just uh, fetch a file. I just haven't filed them. I mean, cut them like humans do. Nail trimmers. And for just a moment, as you're surrounded by these townsfolk, as some are carrying pitchforks and some are carrying torches, all staring wide-eyed, everything shifts. And instead, you're surrounded by children, or young adults, I suppose. And they're wearing these strange outfits that you can't quite comprehend. And they're all pointing and laughing. And then it changes back to these townsfolk. I have to leave the people they they don't understand and they're scared. What do you do? I just try to cover. I pull my cloak, my, my hood up, and just try to quick walk before the whole crowd starts looking. Give me a roll to act under pressure. Uh, is this weird shit, Quinn? I think you are very explicitly trying to be not weird in this moment. That's true. And not draw attention to yourself, so I don't think so, unfortunately. Yeah, the pressure I'm under is particularly human. Yeah. Okay. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to make your way out of this crowd, and you feel something tug at you from behind. Someone has grabbed your cloak and pulled it down. And for everyone to see, you have all of the countenance of a wolf. I think I growl and snap at them. There's a startled shriek and a ripple of fear rolls through the crowd and everyone backs off and gives you space. 
The guards up on top of the stage start murmuring, and the vampire hisses, looks at you, and says, Let me free, kindred. Let me out, we can hunt together. Uh, uh-uh. Don't let these mortals dominate us. I we are the predators. No, no, I, f- I feel like I was part of what put him in there. Can taste the magic in their marrow, brother. Uh, it's not good, though. I growl back at him. Kindred, how mistaken you are. We are not for this world. And I give a instinctual howl and I leap away. I go straight up a building, werewolf in London, <laughs> rooftop to rooftop out of town. You go to leap away, and as you do, you can see the darkness around these torchlights starting to creep in. And it has a quality to it. Viscous. Almost inky. Mm-hmm. Give me a roll, no limits, as you attempt to escape over the rooftops. That's a 14, Quinn. Okay. You have advanced no limits. Yes, I do. Do you want to remind the listeners what happens on an advanced no limits? On a 12 plus, pushing yourself to the limits activates the power of your supernatural ancestry. You may choose an extra effect. Heal one harm or stabilize an injury. Your show of force inspires and intimidates. You and your allies each take plus one forward. You escape your current situation no matter how well contained. Ooh. You awaken a memory from your bloodline that provides insight into your current situation. If you choose an extra effect, your true nature will be revealed, obviously and undeniably, to anyone nearby. I already got that going pretty well. Yeah. I think the most obvious choice is the one that just helps with what I am explicitly doing, which is escape my current situation no matter how well contained. (laughs) Yeah, that does seem like a pretty solid one. (laughs) Peace. Guardian out. What does it look like as you escape, Guardian? I think it's pretty... I think to the assembled crowd, it goes pretty quick. And so the cloak is pulled off. This little exchange happens. Alvin gives a bit of a growl and a howl. And in just like two steps, he's to the nearest building and he jumps, grabs a pillar or the side of the building and uses that to launch himself up onto the roof. And then just two steps and he is leaping off of that roof towards the next building. And just the people in the crowd just see a silhouette of this canine-ish man just giving him the deuces. (laughs) Flies off the building. Amazing. Guardian, you leap over this building and out into an open field where it's just you and the darkness and the moon, and you're running and running until up ahead of you, you see glimmering in the moonlight, just floating in the air, a single silver thread. Yeah, I think Guardian Alvin is over this memory and he sees that and he's like, ah, take it out of here and just like reaches for it like a relay racer. In the past, when you grabbed hold of these threads, you've been transported. This time you're yanked forward Mm. and you're sailing through the darkness until suddenly you come to an abrupt halt Mm. and you're just sitting in darkness until you realize that there is a small line of light ahead of you. It's coming from beneath a door. You get your bearings, and you realize you're sitting amidst a supply closet. Lights off, door shut, and locked. And you remember you're in Firmament College. Because this is the closet where you hid out after your first transformation. I think I'm holding my scarf up 
over my mouth, I kind of muffle a slight whimpering. What happens next? I fumble for my phone and struggle mightily to unlock it. Like you scratch the screen a couple times. Yep, definitely. And over the course of maybe 10 minutes, try to punch out a text to Leon that just asks, are you home? You get a text back almost immediately that says, yeah, I'm, I'm home. Where are you? What happened? You ran off. I text back just like with as much abbreviation as possible. Went to health center, have flu, be home soon. Okay, I'll make soup. And then I dig through the supply closet and try to find if there's any spare jackets or work gloves or (laughs) hoods, any sort of clothing sort of fabric. And I gather them all up and I try to cover as much of myself as possible. Yeah, whatever attire you wound up wearing that day, Mm -hmm. I think is there. And from that point, as, as soon as I hear the noise die down outside of the closet, I pick my moment and just try to take the most direct route back to the apartment. Did Alvin struggle leaving? Yeah, Miley. I mean, I didn't know if anybody saw me run away. I, it was just panic. And while that panic has, has subsided a little bit, there's it was replaced with anxiety and fear. The adrenaline wore off a little bit. And there's just like the brain struggles to think any more than one step ahead without spiraling into complete collapse. So he's trying to think like, OK, well, I can't be in here forever. So the thought has crossed my mind. This could be my new home. It's kind of warm. Smells a little stuffy. But no, I I can't stay in in here forever. I don't know who to to see. Trying to decide where where to go just ended up with, well, home is the first thought. I got to get back to to my space. And as you have this thought, that as comforting as it is, you can't just stay here forever. There's a small silver thread hanging off the door handle. I think he's so preoccupied with the fear and the anxiety of will Leon see what will Leon think? Is this forever? The thoughts are preoccupying his mind, so he hardly even sees the thread, but rather just grasps it as he grabs the handle and turns it. And everything fades away. Hey folks, Quinn here. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 49 of Monster Hour. I hope you all are enjoying this little trip down memory lane here. We had a lot of fun exploring the hunters' backstories a little bit more, learning how they became the people that they are today, even if it was at the hands of uh, otherworldly void jelly, and hope you're enjoying it as well. Not a lot of announcements this intermission, and sometimes the real monster is just filling space, so I'll just say, as always, a big thank you to everyone who has helped spread the word about the show by leaving us a rating and review, giving us a shout on social media, and recommending the show to a friend. Word of mouth is the best advertisement for indie podcasts like us, and we are so grateful for all of your kind words and support and pestering people to to listen to us, so thank you all so much. And don't forget that if you tweet about the show using hashtag MonsterHourPod, you might wind up with a character named after you. That character might wind up being an adorable animal, making its debut in the second half here. Uh, You're welcome slash I'm sorry, Maya at uh, TikTalik73. Thank you for tweeting about the show. 
Uh, but you never know with a show like ours. We got that chaos energy. You never know what you're going to get. And that's it. That's all I got for you this week, folks. We'll return with episode 50 of Monster Hour on May 11th. I'm trying very hard to reserve all of my excitement and gratitude uh, for the intermission for episode 50. But uh, in, in advance, thank you all. Thank you for listening. Uh, and we will, we will see you for our 50th episode on May 11th. See you then. Constance, you find yourself in your studio. And I think just saying that still sounds foreign on your tongue. Because it is now your studio for the first time. All of your boonies stuff is still there. But in something of a surprise, she left it to you. What does it look like? I think all of my boonies stuff is still around, like you said. And then there's just two of the biggest moving boxes you could get. You know, like the, just the ones that are just way too big, because if you actually fill them all the way, you wouldn't be able to carry them. And then a mattress <laughs> in the place. And I think Constance's first thought is, apparently I didn't have as much stuff as I thought I did. <laughs> Because <laughs> I have two boxes, <laughs> two big boxes of stuff. And then if you trail off and look into the kitchen, you realize, oh, okay, it's two boxes of actual stuff and then an entire kitchen that is currently filled to the brim with art supplies. So really, I do have quite a bit of stuff and it is not set up. I don't want to, I don't want to change anything that will make me feel less connected to my grandma, which also means I have like a bit of a, like I'm frozen in place a little bit of like, I don't want to make it my own quite yet because I don't think I'm ready for that, but I'm also terrified about making it my own and doing it badly. So there's like some picture frames that I haven't put up yet, but I definitely could, like literally all the supplies are there to do it. Like it, it, things that if you were to walk in, you'd go, hmm. Seems like you could knock a lot of this out in a day, and I just haven't. You have decision fatigue. Yes, thank <laughs> you. I have massive decision fatigue with a gut punch of like uh, uh, familial guilt. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? It's probably incredibly terrifying because on the one hand, this is a place that she has always felt very comfortable in and very safe in, and she thought that by having this be her, her new home, that that feeling would carry on. But obviously, it doesn't feel the same because her boonie's not there anymore. It's not the same space anymore. It has like the like nostalgic memory, like a, like a sensory perfume of still feeling warm and safe. But now suddenly it's on Constance to create that warmth and safety. And I think that that's very terrifying for her. So... She probably honestly goes into the kitchen, makes a cup of tea, the kind that her boonie would always make for her, and then she probably sits on the floor in the middle of the room, takes kind of a look around at everything, realizes this is her space now, and starts pulling books off of the wall because might as well reorganize the book system. Like, that's something that she can put her mind to. That's something that she can, like create a system around and not have to think about how this safe space has become a very different place for her now. 
How much time did you spend looking at your Boonies library before? Were you familiar with this library or or is this new to you? I always liked staring up at the library. There were two shelves that were like the Constance books and they were originally when Constance was really young, it was so that Constance could reach out and grab one of her favorite books. So they were lower on the bookcase. But as she got older, obviously, it wasn't like her boonie was reading to her nighttime fairy tales the same way anymore. But it was still those two shelves just continued to be books for Constance. So she would look at what the other books were and mainly just look at like, ooh, look at that wonderful binding. Oh, look at that one. It looks so pretty and old. And she knew a lot of them were like first prints, first editions. But she really paid most attention to the books that Boonie would put into those two shelves for her specifically. It was almost like recommendations from her boonie, like, I would like you to read this, <laughs> right? So I don't think she's as familiar with all the content of the other books, but she's definitely noticed that there's some like weird weaponry books and some interesting anthologies and a lot of like the Brothers Grimm kind of stuff in there. Constance, you start pulling these books off the shelves and they cover a wide range of topics, but I think you're surprised by how many are dedicated to folklore and how many are dedicated to what could only really be described as occult texts, like not quite demonology, but kind of getting close to the line, and ancient weaponry and like the history of old battles and just, I mean, you always knew about the side of your boonie, but I think you're surprised at just the bulk of her library actually seems to be committed to this. Yeah, I think Constance like originally tries to kind of like put books into some piles, right? And then she realizes it's like, okay, another cult book. Okay, another <laughs> folklore slash occult book. Okay, this one also occasionally talks about the plague. Could that be kind of a medicine book? She kind of immediately abandons the plan to reorganize things based on category. And instead, I think she probably just especially since she's alone and no one can judge her for it. She probably pulls the most elaborately bound of the books that she's always kind of been like, whoa, that one looks really cool. It's got some leather binding, but it also looks like it has like some like woven silk stuff into it. Like it, this is like a hand bound first edition, if there even ever was a second edition book and pulls it out and just like opens it to see what it's about. Constance, you pull out this exquisitely bound tome, and you open to the first page, and inside is a sheaf of paper, a note from your boonie, and it says, My dear, I knew you would pick this one. I have always treasured our story time, reading tales to you and seeing the light that touches your face. But you must know that there are no fairy tales. There's only truth. And often that truth is frightening and fierce and dangerous, ugly or distorted. But it can also be beautiful and loving and curious and exquisite. And there is so much unknown out there. And just because we don't know it doesn't mean it's not true. I've done my best to catalog everything that I have learned. I hope you never need it. But if you do, it's all here. I start furiously just flipping through the pages. Like, what? What? 
How did she even know that this was the book I was going to pick? I'm slightly kind of freaked out. I think, what time of day is it right now? You tell me. I would say it's evening at this point. Okay. So I think Constance starts to feel a little creeped out. And yeah, she starts like thumbing through the pages looking. She doesn't even know what she's looking for, but like she's thumbing through the pages. And then I think she just kind of splits the book open right into the middle and just starts reading whatever that passage is. Give me a role to investigate a mystery. Okay. That is a 12. Advanced. Very nice. Yeah. On a 10 plus, hold two. On a 12 plus, you can ask me any question you want. I'm still going to ask from the list here. Uh, Sure. Always an option. What is being concealed here? Constance, you start flipping through this book, pouring over it. And every time you turn the page, just for a second, not even a second, just for a, a fraction of a second, you can see the ink on the pages rearranging itself. As you're turning the page, you realize that it's not quite settled. Um, okay. I don't know what to make the second question. I guess I, I want to know what it says when it settles. It is always settled by the time you open the page. It is just as you are flipping to the next page. It's just not quite settled. So it's like it's loading every time you yes. flip a page. As sort of a corollary here. Constance, this is not how you remember this going. Oh. Yeah, is there any other um, moments where you realize you're in the simulation? Like, does anything seem, now that I've noticed that something is off, is that like when you notice in a dream that things aren't quite right? Like you can't tell time or whatever it is? Constance, as you look around and as you move around the studio... I think you do catch glimpses here and there of viscous black ink settling into place in corners and crevices just at the edge of your vision. And I rub my eyes and it's still there. This isn't a physical thing. Well, I mean, literally, as soon as you turn your eyes to it, it's gone. You can never get a clean look at any of this. Hmm. It's always just at the edge of your vision. Okay. I walk over to the panel by the front door where my flamethrower should be. Okay. I open it. Is there a flamethrower? Yeah, strangely enough, Constance, as you try to make sense of this environment, you get these fleeting ideas, these fleeting notions popping in and out of your head, and you walk to the front door and you pull on a panel, and it reveals a flamethrower. I take a less important book off of the bookshelf, maybe one that was written by a not-so-great note-taker. It's got like maybe some stuff about a Verkalakis, but nothing else in there. Put it on the ground and I set it on fire. Constance, you set this on fire and it starts to burn and very quickly just dissolves into this like black liquid, this inky black liquid. And as it does, everything around you starts to change. You feel something dripping over your head, and the ceiling is turning into a jet black viscous liquid, and it's dripping down on you, and all of the walls are slowly decaying, and all around you, everything is melting like black wax. While it's still even remotely, if it's still even remotely working, I think I start just lighting the whole room on fire. And as I say that, I think I just start going like, move it along, buddy. Next. Constance, you are turning this flamethrower on the remnants of the studio, and very quickly, you are drowned in black ink. 
and everything fades away. JR. Yes. You are in a very, very stylish upscale villa in the Bay Area. You are what's what's JR's drink of choice on a on a hot summer day? Sitting poolside. Oh, mint julep. You're sipping on a mint julep it's by not, the pool. Not just for Derby Day. Not just for Derby Day. For every day. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and JR, I think you remember this quite vividly at this point. This villa belongs to the Prince of Palo Alto. <laughs> the Prince of Palo Alto. Prince of Palo Alto. Like, um, that's, yeah, that's pretty that's fucking pretty good. good. That's pretty good. <laughs> the kingpin. So good. The drug so kingpin good. of the Bay Area, supplier of all of the illicit goods needed to keep Silicon Valley running. One of the most wealthy and least reputable people in all of California. What are you here to do? It is my first time being back in the Bay Area in a while. I talked my way into this party, but it wasn't particularly difficult to get in. And I think I was just kind of scoping things out. You know, it's a pool party. I'm not going to say no to, to free drinks, but I'm going to steal probably as much money as I can get my hands on because... I have no qualms about robbing a tacky nouveau riche man who wears a lot of white suits, unironically, and supplies everybody with just, like, mountains of cocaine. Just, like, so much. Yeah, there's literally a silver platter that is just a mountain of cocaine. Yeah. It's literally, it's right there. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's floating on a, it's a silver platter floating on a pool floaty yep. in the middle of the pool. Yep. Yep. That you are sitting beside. Yeah. And let's be clear. The king of Palo Alto, the prince of Palo Alto. Sorry, he's not the king yet. The prince of Palo Alto also is starting to branch out into party drugs, but like cocaine is like, that's that's where it at. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The pool floaty. Well, nine yet. So um, when you got a crunch, you got to have cocaine. Oh, yeah. So I finished my mint julep. And also one of the tricks of the trade is like you don't drink as much as everybody else drinks, but you make it look like you do. And the trick with that is you get a drink with like a lot of ice in it and you let it melt so you don't, uh, you do not become intoxicated. But I finished my mint julep and now it's time to see if I can steal some money. So around you, I think most of the party is happening poolside. It's a very nice day. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a big pool. I think it's like an Olympic length pool. And the Prince of Palo Alto, who was wearing like a white linen suit, uh, has stripped down to some board shorts. He's swimming in the pool. He's playing around with his dolphin. And the crowd of people, I think, I don't think it's like a massive party, actually. I think it's like 30 or 40 people, but they're all, they're all sort of gathered around and just having like a crazy time. You know, there's like beach volleyball. There's, what, what else do we think is happening here? At the other end of the pool, there's some folks doing that. I think the game is called Chicken, where you have like somebody is in the pool and somebody is up on their shoulders. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And they're pushing. So that's going on. I'm guessing that there's probably a really nice manicured lawn that this man spent entirely too much money on. Again, nouveau riche. And so there's some people playing croquet, but they're like all in their swimsuits. Amazing. Yeah. And they're just atrociously bad at it. Oh, it's yeah. It's going really yeah. terribly. Like, so there are very specific rules to playing croquet, and they are not following them at all. They're just like- Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think they're playing it more like golf, where they're hitting these yes. croquet balls onto the campus that surrounds the villa. 
Oh, yeah. Somebody has set, set up the wickets in the posts and they are just ignoring them. And for some reason, that is really, really irritating me. It's like somebody put all this work putting up the cro- and you're just and those croquet balls are very heavy and you could hurt somebody with them. But honestly, why set up the course if you're not going to follow the rules? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this this party is in full swing. What happens next? I put my drink down. And I'm going to go inside and there is some partying going on inside the house. But there's definitely a, okay, this is probably not an area that I'm supposed to be, but whatever. I I go wherever I want. JR does whatever she wants. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. So you're wandering through these, these different rooms, taking mm-hmm. what you will and what you please. And I think you head into one room and there's one guy passed out on a couch and mm-hmm. there's a woman with sort of platinum blonde hair in her late 20s and she is sitting on the couch next to this passed out guy. And in her lap is a baby tiger. She's like playing with it. And you can see she's got it on a leash, actually. Mm -hmm. It looks like a kitten, but it's the size of a dog. Yeah. And it's got this just this luscious fur. And it's like playing and like pawing around. But yeah, she's just sitting there and she's got a, a baby tiger there. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so cute. Oh, And like, I know, that is a wild animal. It does not belong in somebody's house. Uh, yeah, I think I'd go over and... Oh my god, is that a tiger? (gasps) Oh, it's so cute! Can I pet it? Don't touch. Look with your eyes. Okay, just looking with my eyes. So I'm I'm squatting down like... This is the uh, prince's pet. Does it have a name? It's so cute. Oh my god. Its name's Maya. Maya, oh my god. Can I please pet it, please? Oh my god. Please, 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 please. JR, give me a role to manipulate someone. What will convince Blondie to let me pet the tiger? That is a good question. I don't think it's a guarantee here. I think you'd need to convince her that like the Prince of Palo Alto had agreed to it at some point or like had given his blessing to like, okay. like she sees herself as like the caretaker of this tiger, whether or not that's true. So I think you need to convince right. okay. her that he is, he has blessed this interaction. What is the Prince of Palo Alto's real name? I kind of want to say nobody knows. I kind of want to say nobody knows his real name. Nobody knows his real name because I was going to say if like I knew his real name. Did you f- figure it out somehow? I don't think it's commonly known, but JR, if you think somehow you figured it out. I think I probably would have figured it out. So I'm I'm thinking about his name is I mean his his real name is like Ted, but he calls himself Rex. Like oh, he's, that's very he, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he calls himself Rex. Okay. All right. Let's see if I can manipulate So the- using that knowledge, what do you say? Okay. Oh, can I please pet it? Rex said it was okay. He did say he had a pet. He just didn't say it was this lovely creature. Oh my God, Maya's so cute. Please, can I pet her? Now give me a roll to manipulate someone. All right, there you go. Okay. Uh, Nine. On a seven and nine, they'll do it, but you need to do something for them right now to show them that you mean it. What did you do, JR? What did you do to show her that you meant it? So at that moment, like I was going to just rob this guy blind and I definitely have some stuff in my bag, but the part, there's a part of me at this point that's like, this is actually really bad. 
First of all, it's going to get really big. And second of all, it's a wild animal. And third of all, I, based on the size and based on like, I don't know, the little knowledge that I have about tigers, I'm pretty sure this tiger was taken away from its mother at like too young an age. So I'm upset about this. So I, um, <clears throat> I pull a knife on this woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that will convince her. Oh my God! What are you? And I, what are you I, doing? I pull a, what are I you doing? Stop it! You're gonna give me the tiger right now. You're gonna give me the fucking tiger right now. Or I'm, I'm gonna like, cut you. Oh my God! I'm gonna fucking cut you. She like holds out the tiger like to like block your knife, basically. Okay, so I take I take the tiger and I've got the tiger and I'm holding out the knife in the other hand so that I can back out of this room. And somehow I think when I left the room, I broke the doorknob so she wouldn't be able to get out. At some point as I was leaving, it was discovered that there was a screaming woman locked in a room, but I was able to halt her advance long enough for me to basically just like book it out of there. Because you may have noticed the JR is really good at just running away from things. So JR, you you escape this room and you, you lock the door behind you. And I think you're expecting the prince to stop you. I think you expected security or someone anyone at this party with all of this money and all of this power, I think you expected someone to get in your way, JR. And they didn't. You just walked out with Maya the tiger cub. Out the front door, down the driveway, and that was it. Listeners at home, in the real version of this, um, I kept Maya for a long weekend, which was very fun and very cute. And then I ding-dong ditched a wildlife sanctuary (laughs) with a tiger cub. Like, I I found a a local wildlife sanctuary, and I left Maya in capable hands. JR, something changed. Something was different after this heist. What, What was it about that tiger cub? What was it about Maya the tiger? It was that this animal was helpless. The Prince of Palo Alto had this wild animal for prestige and nobody was looking out for that cat. You know, it needed rescuing. It needed somebody to save it. And it wasn't going to be anybody else at that party. It was going to be me with a switchblade. (laughs) Nobody was ever looking out for me. So I was going to try and look out for this tiger cub. So you're standing on the doorstep of the Northern California Wildlife Sanctuary, and Maya the tiger cub is in a cute little- Yep, uh, little pet carrier. Yep. I got her a carrier, but like she's growing so fast that it's like a little too- Like I got her in the carrier, but there's a little bit of growling and like some fur kind of sticking out from the holes. (laughs) And I think you're just paused for a little while, looking down at Maya the tiger cub and staring at this door- and you can see around it is looped a single silver thread. Hmm. I looked down at the tiger cub. Well, I reached to the thread when I was getting out of the mall, so I reached forward and I grabbed the thread. And everything fades away. Alvin. Mm-hmm. The door swings open... And you find yourself on a familiar front porch. There's a long driveway leading out ahead of you, carving its way through a sprawling farm. Further in the distance, you can see a valley stretching out, dotted with trees and greenery. 
On either side, plateaued mesas and arid mountains. The sun is beaming down overhead, and as a cool breeze rolls through, the door to your front porch swings shut behind you. gonna kind of shuffle around taxi's not not here yet so i just kind of idle hands i just start rearranging the couple bags that have been kind of piled up on the porch where are you headed i'm headed out away this is my home uh, most all that i've known for, for for my my whole life i suppose and it's It's feeling really small. From behind you, beyond the door, and into the small house, your home. You can hear the sound of voices pitching back and forth, and chairs grating over linoleum. Heavy footsteps as you can hear the back door open and slam shut. And after a pause, the sound of heavy work being done in the barn out back, where your father often goes. When he needs to think. Yeah, it's his his stress tractor. Yep. He's fired up the stress tractor. Mm-hmm. Gonna do some stress farming. Mm-hmm. Now, this might be the thing that finally gets him to fix it up. <laughs> Get it running. How long has he been working on that tractor? Oh, it's never run. <laughs> How long has he had it? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's had that thing for at least 15 years. <laughs> Gosh. Gone out, tinkered on it when he... Needs alone time or fuzz to fill his head. I don't know what he's going to do when he fixes it. The front door opens and you see Sarah. She flashes you something of a forced smile, goes and takes a seat on the old rocker on the porch. Yeah, I give kind of a sad smile back and a rummage in a, one of the bags and pull out the most recent copy of Hermes. Uh, and kind of nice pull quietly just kind of hand it over towards her without really looking she looks at you somewhat skeptically and very gingerly reaches out and snatches the comic from your hand don't think she's ever known you to give up one of your treasured (laughs) books and she thumbs through it briefly and uh she smiles more broadly The strain that you could see around her cheeks and beneath her eyes melts away into that that winning smile that you know from your sister. Now, Sarah, I I haven't read it either, so you have to promise to to come visit me and give it back, okay? I'll dog ear every page. Don't worry, big bro. Ooh, I've made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to be okay? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'll be fine. You know, in a year or two, I'll I'll follow you. I'm sure I can get my grades up. I'll, I'm I'm sure I can. I'm sure I can make it to Vermont College. Yeah, well, it, you've seen my grades. They don't they don't have to be too high. <laughs> you've got a lot of other stuff going for you, big bro. Listen, you got a lot of runway. I dream dream bigger. You know, I I'd love to see you there at Vermont College, but you know, think maybe Stanford, think Notre Dame. She just laughs. <laughs> that's that's really sweet big brother but you know for for folks like us i think the best thing that we can do is just try to get out forge our own path 
There's got to be more out there, you know? There definitely is. We just got to find it. You know I don't like leaving you. I'll be fine. And if you don't leave now, you're never going to. <laughs> That's true. He'll come around. I hope so. Just go out there. Do good. He'll be proud of the man you become. How come I'm the older sibling? This kind of feels like you've got some extra years on you, Sarah. You were the incumbent when I came around, so I didn't really have much of a shot. <laughs> I think we both just kind of sit on the edge of the porch in silence a little bit. And listen to the banging from the <laughs> shed. Yep. And I think eventually, after an indeterminate amount of time, a bright yellow taxi cab winds its way down that dirt road and pulls up in front of the porch. I kind of lean over to Sarah like, I didn't think they were actually bright yellow all the time, huh? What do you... I thought that was kind of like a What do you mean you thing. didn't think they were bright? You think they well, just I made it up for like, the movies? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in movies that's not really true in real life. Thought it was just like, oh, this is picturesque taxi. We can't make it green or people won't know it's a taxi. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Thanks, Bear Cub. I hope to see you real soon, okay? Sarah rushes over to you and gives you a tremendous hug. And I think just as the two of you split and you get ready to turn and leave, she says, just remember, big bro. Go make your own path, but no matter how far you go, we're always family. And as she says that, the scene blurs and shifts, and instead of the farm that you grew up on, you find yourself standing amidst a vast, windswept plain. Nothing but gentle hills and forested mountains in the distance. You're standing in a small circle, joined by five otherworldly beings. A titanic serpent covered in shimmering scales, rainbow plumage decorating its two enormous wings and molten gold behind its eyes. A man with four arms and four legs and eyes that never end, coal-black skin swathed in shimmering silken cloth. A weathered stone sarcophagus with intricate bas-reliefs along the side above which rests a singularly brilliant point of light. A barely contained tempest of sand and fire, in the center of which stands a person clad in nothing but iron chains. And a figure in a flowing gray robe, low-hanging cowl completely obscuring their face. In one hand, they hold a heavy tome bound in black leather, open to one of the many yellowing pages. And in the other, they wield an ornate and overlarge smithing hammer, edges ringed with sigils shining brightly. In the center of these five entities is a circular disc of blackened metal, almost ten feet across, perfectly flat and smooth, save for a ring of inscriptions around the exterior. And surrounding them are dozens of other beings. There are people of every persuasion, each clad in a distinctly decorated robe. And creatures, too. Towering figures whose rough-hewn stature evoke the giant pines and distant mountains 
translucent spirit forms whose mercurial presence emanate both wisdom and senescence, all manner of baffling hybrids hastily assembled from the parts of more mundane creatures. Overhead, enormous birds of prey circle, calling forth fire and lightning and rain, while seemingly familiar beasts bearing unfamiliar auras form a congregation around you. And amongst them, Alvin, a colossal canine, fur thick as hide and full moon eyes, looks knowingly your direction. A disquieted unease hangs over the assembly as they wait wordlessly. The silence broken only occasionally by a howling gale. At last, a dull thud rouses the crowd's attention as the grey-robed figure shuts the grimoire. Wordlessly, they raise the hammer over their head, and around it, the air begins to change, wobbling and rippling like heat waves on the horizon. Amidst the swirling currents and eddies, the colors begin to shift as well, bleeding and dancing with a life of their own. The field around the instrument brims with energy and chaos, uncertain, but filled with potential. The flame-wreathed figure steps forward silently, unbinding the iron manacles from their body. As they do, their fierce countenance melts away, revealing a smooth, featureless face beneath. They heft the chain onto the disc, and the hammer falls upon it with a resounding blow, driving it beneath the metal surface. In its place appears the symbol of two circles, linked together. The hammer rises again. The great feathered serpent rears back and looses a thunderous roar that's rejoined by a chorus from the bestial choir. The hammer falls, and the din abruptly stops, ushering forth the symbol of a great claw. The hammer rises. The light above the sarcophagus floats to the center of the disc, and for just a moment shines as brightly as the sun itself. The hammer falls, and the light goes out. The symbol of an ankh appears. The hammer rises, and the great trickster Anansi steps forward, removing his shawl of silk and laying it down gently atop the shimmering onyx. The hammer falls, and the symbol of an eye with a swirling vortex and the iris appears. With each strike, the grey-robed figure has grown thinner and frailer, shrinking beneath the folds of their grey robe. As Anansi steps back, they drop the grimoire with a dull thud and place their left hand upon the disc, their right drawing the hammer back one more time. It falls, driving the symbol of a hand into the disc, and the grey robe falls empty on the ground. And we see the hammer humming with magical energy, resonating in harmony with the seal, begin to change. The metal peels and bends and twists upon itself to reflect the object of unheralded power and purpose that it wrought. An ornate skeleton key. The inscriptions along its flowing curves, a perfect match for those upon the seal. And beside it, the grimoire, fallen open to a well-worn passage to a diagram splayed across many pages. A sphere of exquisite anarchy, defying the very nature of being written with its constant motion. Thirteen seals bound together, forming a steadfast cage around it. And beyond it, 
three bodies in orbit. A dozen hands forming a circle. An open book filled with all the stars in the sky. And a great gate of gleaming silver. Woo. And Alvin, this scene continues to play out around you. The ground beneath you begins to quake. And you can see columns of earth beginning to rise up. And the assembled group of creatures springs into action. All save for one. Beside you stands Anansi, the trickster. He looks at you and says, This is what he wanted to see. Now you have seen it as well. I hope it is enough. We are out of time, Guardian. And everything disappears, Alvin, as you sit bolt upright. Sarah? 